welcome to Changing Academic Life. I'm Geraldine Fitzpatrick, and this is a podcast series where academics and others share their stories, provide ideas, and provoke discussions about what we can do individually and collectively to change academic life for the better. Great that you could join us today for this conversation with Laisha Palin. Laisha is a professor and founding chair of information science at the University of Colorado Boulder. She's also been really instrumental in establishing crisis informatics as a research area. In this conversation, Laisha shares her career trajectory in getting to this place as head of a department. What I was particularly surprised to learn was that she only really got tenure some short years ago relative to her seniority and position in the research community. Hers is an amazing story of being a first-generation PhD, dealing with imposter syndrome and moving to a new university to support her spouse. It's also a story of focus and perseverance in really working at defining a research area that she connected with where she felt she could make a difference and then being supported for years by soft money from her own successful proposals before finally getting a half-time faculty position while also having a family and growing the internationally recognised Project EPIC doing the crisis informatic work. Leisha also talks about her challenges and lessons learned in setting up and leading a whole new department. It's an inspirational story that I'm sure you'll take a lot from. So here is my conversation with Leisha. Leisha, thanks for joining me. It's great to be able to talk together because we've been part of the same research community for a long, a long time. time. <laughs> a long time. I think, you know, 25 years. Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. 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 So you've had a really interesting career I, you know you're now a founding professor you know chair of a, of a whole new department and I'd, I'd love to get to discuss that and um, you've also been instrumental in shaping up a whole new research area about around disaster informatics yeah. um, before we get there just a little bit of a a, a quick background for of your history for people who don't know you yeah sure so um as I get older, the further back in history I seem to go as I understand how some early maneuvers and things ended up um, and accidents, um, mind you, uh, help shape where I am today. So uh, I ended up at UCSD as an undergraduate student. Um, what is sort of a, uh, a thing I've started returning to uh which is a, a sort of a big thing, I think, in American scholarly discourse these days around who gets to participate in mm-hmm. higher ed, is that I'm a first-generation college student. And uh, I grew up in San Diego, and uh, I wasn't able to go off to college somewhere far and wide. And I ended up at UCSD, which at the time, to me, felt like a consolation prize, like, oh, Gosh, I really wish I could have gone further afield. Because yeah. that's well, a that's part of the culture here, isn't it? That yeah, right. you do tend to go. Right. And I understand else. in Australia it's a little bit less that. Less, from some yeah. of my one of my PhD students yes. is Australian and explained yeah. that to me. 
but yes, it, it, it is. And so um, I stayed at home and I went to UCSD. Now, little did I know that UCSD was really sort of the an incubator, one of a few incubators of human-computer interaction research. Mm-hmm. And so after um, changing my major three times, I, changed, I started out as a civil engineer. My very first course was in Fortran for engineers. <laughs> I loved Fortran. I loved programming. And so I switched into computer science. And I liked it and I did well. But that's when Don Norman and others were starting the cognitive science department at UCSD. And so I switched for a third time um, so that I could move into this program rather late. Um, And so that was well into my third year at university. I ended up doing a fifth year so that I could get enough of the CogSci education program to be able to get a degree in CogSci. And it was there that I worked with Aaron Sikorell, who was a student of Carfinkel. So it was early exposure to ethnomethodology. Although I didn't... So when, when ethnomethodologists and other kind of high, sort of high, um, highly... Um, what's the word? Um, um, scholars of very high standing because of their intellectual work teach to undergraduates... They will often sort of gloss over sort of the philosophical or um, sort of details of what yeah. they do. Yeah. And so I learned how to be an ethnomethodologist without even knowing that that's what the name of it was, honestly. Um, I worked with Ed Hutchins, who was had just been named a MacArthur Fellow. I didn't know what any of that meant. Um, and so by working in this lab with uh, Don Norman and Ed Hutchins at the time, and then exposure to Aaron Sicarell, who to- co-taught some of these courses with Ed and Dawn, here I was, this sort of bumbling undergrad student, which most of us are, but one really who, again, didn't have any idea what research was because of just my, my background, um, ended up working in some of these premier research labs. And yeah. so it was with Ed primarily that I did aviation research as an undergrad. Yeah. And from there, I went to Boeing in Seattle and worked in a flight deck research group. Right. And it was there that I worked in this research group and realized wow, not only do I like research a little bit to get my first job out of undergrad um, doing that, I really want to go to grad school and, right. and do more. Like, this is what I want to do. And so then, then it was in 93 that I ended up at Irvine, and I ended up there in September, and then, of course, Mosaic was released in October. Mm. And so the whole discourse around mm. the whole set of things that we thought we could do around computing were really... Um, we knew they were changing, but they sort of suddenly and dramatically changed the second month I was in grad school. And that sort of set the course for a lot of other things yeah. that happened since. So it was a very sort of lucky series of uh, steps of events that yeah. got me into human-computer interaction. Yeah. But but maybe other like interesting steps would have happened if I ended up more in biology at UCSD or whatever. Yeah. I'd like to think that, yes. you know, there yeah. would have been a lot of interesting tracks, I would have hoped. And I think academia was really a a place I just wanted to really be somehow, mm. some way. Mm. What, what connected about it? Uh, Human-computer interaction? Well, academia and research, um, in, more generally, I guess. You know, or, I think it's just, um, I can say now, I'm not sure I knew it then, yeah. but just some pursuit of understanding the fundamental, yeah. the fundamentals of what makes us who we are, what makes us human, yeah. what makes it possible for us to accomplish all these things that we accomplish as we're sitting here looking at the New York skyline. Mm. Like, how do all these things get built? How do we coordinate in ways that we accomplish um, social interaction and the construction of society? What are all the small ways and the, and the accumulation of all those small ways 
that then become these very significant mm -hmm. kinds of structures mm -hmm. that we organize around. Mm -hmm. And that, that, I think, is fundamentally interesting to me, including all the ways in which those things go wrong. Um, and I think that was proper, I think that's the reason why I like research so much. And you've played out that theme in multiple different ways. Yeah. Um, so you talked about luck as well, which I find interesting because so many people do talk about luck, but there's something about just you know, responding to the opportunities yeah, that, that so. arise. And the names that you mentioned for people who aren't familiar with this yeah. with the field are just some of the m most senior influential people. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, yeah. and what I a privilege. And, you know, they were quite humble because yeah. I didn't know they were. They were just... Professors, I didn't really appreciate until later who they were and what it meant to be sort of taken under their wing. So um, just kind of a readiness to be taught by anybody. Now, these happen to be incredible people, but there were plenty of other people who taught me along the way who yeah. perhaps don't have the same credentials, but um, who were invaluable. In influential. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so you did your PhD at Irvine. Yes. And that, right. then That's went... Right. Then went right to um, Colorado, University of oh, Colorado okay. Boulder. Was, yeah. 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 Yep. And I was a trailing spouse. Um, so it was my spouse who secured the position there. There wasn't at the time at Colorado, this would be 1998 now, so 20 years ago, um, almost exactly, uh, that I ended up there and the closest fit for me was computer science. And so it was kind of an accommodation by all, both the department and me and everyone to kind of make it work. And so, so it worked and I was grateful for the opportunity, but it wasn't an easy fit. Was it an easy decision? How, how was that decision process um, for you? Yes. And so, yeah. So people often ask, Oh, did you, so the, the formal language in us, the U.S. Academy is to call to call what I was a trailing spouse, which has a negative connotation. It's, yes, it's really negative connotation. Yep. And they asked how I felt about that. The truth was, I still was uncertain if I belonged in the academy. I still, I think, had a feeling of not quite knowing if I could be one of those folks. Like, was I? Smart enough? Did I have what it takes? There was still a little bit of kind of some a imposter. Long time, a long time there was a feeling of imposter syndrome, yeah. and so I thought perhaps I'd be better suited in an ind industry. To be honest with you, I bet a lot of it I now kind of reconcile and realize it was sort of imposter syndrome. Um, but I wasn't unhappy that we could live in such a beautiful place, and I wanted to live in a place like Boulder, Colorado, um, to raise a family and other kinds of things. Um, and so it didn't feel like a sacrifice at all. I think some, I had, I was pretty naive in thinking that, oh, things will work out. Um, as long, and I knew I, so the thing I did was I stayed in research. I kept my research going even at the cost of other things. Like I couldn't teach as much and I couldn't quite do as many other things while we were sort of, you know, my spouse and I were kind of making things work. And he's a very, very good inverse, very supportive partner. Um, one of the things I advise people now is even if you're in situations that are less than ideal, either because of other people's design or your own or just the way life takes you, um, if you love research, research, stay in research, and that will most likely, that will almost always ensure good opportunities later on if you are a scholar and want to either be in the academy or do industrial research. But keeping that research thread going is essential. I think that's what sort of um, helped me eventually become a more permanent member of the University mm. of Colorado. And so were you not permanent to begin with? No, I was a what's called a soft money position. These are, again, all U.S. 
terms, I think. I don't know. I think I, I think they might be U.S. terms. So all grant money. Uh, so, so I was a research. I was a research assistant professor. So it was all soft money, meaning I had to bring in National Science Foundation. So you had to get grants. your own money. Yeah, yeah, and I did. Yeah, I did. So <laughs> I did. I just was determined. I was a little bit determined and very naive. I just thought, well. Well, okay, I can get my money. Yeah, sure. <laughs> and so I did. <laughs> did you get your, did your first proposal get accepted? It did. Yeah, wow, it did. Good on it, you. It was. I was so lucky. I mean, again, I was lucky, and again, a little bit. I think I was I was smarter than I knew, and I was more naive than I knew. Mm. Um, so, mm. so I, I mean, I mean, I just have to say, yeah. but I mean, maybe everyone who's yeah. thirty is a little bit naive. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but that's really brilliant that you were able to get the funding yeah. and to keep the research going because yes. if you do have that break, it can be harder to get back in or be competitive than in um, faculty hiring processes. It, it really is. The, re the research record must be there. Um, and it's not to say that teaching isn't important. I think it is so essential. Um, But but one doesn't enter into research universities without research. Absolutely. And there's a presumption, perhaps wrong, that one can learn how to teach well. Um, I mean, well, I think one can. I think teaching, teaching well is not an automatic thing. I think it must be learned like everything else. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, we don't quite put the focus on that in at least U.S. universities. Um, and I think we should put more focus on it. But the coin of the realm is research. It is, and then you it is. Have to and work any the rest hiring out. committees I've been on, even if they say research, teaching, admin, whatever, yeah. you know, it, yeah. with some waiting, research is king research in, is in king. the actual final decision making. It is. It is. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was a very wise decision then to have made. Yes, I think I'm I'm more wise than I give myself yeah. credit for. Yeah. But in the moment, it felt like sort of. I just, 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 just for our listeners, I mean, it's not like this was all part of a grand design. Sometimes it felt like I was bumbling around. Mm. But then on the few things I had to reduce my life to that I could do well while I was also having, in my case, children, it's like I ended up reducing them to, my instincts were right. I reduced yeah. them to the things that yeah. would give me opportunities later on and support in my family and my partner in also thinking about then together, how does us, this all work yeah. as we grow into a bigger unit? I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's important that both people be um, valuable um, in terms of how other people measure value. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So taking care of each other's careers. Taking, so yes, yeah. and that's what I mean. Yeah. Sorry, and that was, thank yeah. you for that. Meaning taking care of each other's careers and helping each other because in the end you're kind of in it together and it's it's the, the, the idea of whether then, it's more the idea of being a team than being wedded that really, I think, helps with yeah. thinking about um, creating and then evaluating opportunities as they come along yeah. later on. So... You talked about having kids. So what, how, how does it play out between being on soft money, having kids, yeah. and obviously you got into a faculty position at Boulder eventually. How did that all happen? I did. So, um, so I have three children. I'm very lucky to be able to say they are just such joys to me. Um, I had the first two while I was on – no, I had the first – sorry, I had the first one while I was on soft money. Um, the second one – Um, came along after I managed to secure a half-time tenure track position, mm. which itself is kind of a weird thing. That's, and 
I appreciate my university for being creative about this solution. Um, but it was a tricky one to actually navigate. It's not clear to me that I would hire anyone as a half-time tenure track position. It's not clear what it means. Yeah, exactly. How, do, how does that all, work? Yeah, your face is all puzzled. <laughs> yeah, not, it's because it is. there isn't a solution, right? There isn't a solution. I suppose it cuts teaching in half, but only it really only cuts it in three quarters because if you're going to teach, they want you to teach in your, your what would be your hardest class. Yeah. So if you're going to teach two courses a year or whatever it might be, maybe it's three courses a year or four courses a year. You So if it's three courses a year, it's really hard to figure out how you cut that in half. So you basically do two, one, yeah. two, one. Um, and a faculty you, meeting is also a faculty yeah, meeting. Yeah, you can't, you go to can't half get a half a faculty meeting. You can't, you can't do half the grant proposals. You can't yeah. write half a final yeah. report. I mean, it's not yeah. – half isn't easy. No, I suppose it released me a little bit an external – service i mean who who knows how to evaluate that so it was it was tricky it was a way into a university that at the time and a university i love by the way um and one now but it was you know this is 20 years ago right or maybe 17 at this part of the storyline and i was in a very traditional college of engineering in a very traditional computer science department and it's a series of steps around everyone trying to accommodate each other um, when they didn't think there was a disciplinary fit. Mm. And so there's, I think, a negative spin to that. I think the positive spin is that um, disciplines are always trying to identify who they are constantly. It's always a question with every single hire, every single move they make. And when I see what they were trying to do in relation to me, the generous interpretation is, they were trying to make it work even though I didn't fit into the particular identity of computer science in a college of engineering at the time. But then half of my work had to be, well, how do I fit into a college of engineering? Yeah. And so one of the parts of that story was when I then wanted to further formalize my research, I really did want to, and I know it sounds trite, but I really did want to make a difference. I mean, I was in a long, I was in post-PhD by six years at this point, and I could see how difficult being in the professoriate really is, the kind of time it requires and the kind of energy to be constantly present. Because to do research and to do teaching, you have to just be so present all the time. Um, You just have to stay with a problem. You have to stay with other people and where they are. And that's a particular kind of energy. And I thought, well, if, if this is lifelong, I've really got to invest in things I care about. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to continue study human coordination as it intersects with technology and the digital and analog information. That was kind of a thing. I was always part of safety critical environments with aviation. So there was something about that I wanted to return to. But then I had to recognize I was also in a college of engineering. Colleges of engineering understand disaster because it takes down buildings and infrastructure right? And so I'm like, wow, this is, this is really a meeting of the heart and the mind and the mm. intellect and local expertise of the College of Engineering that I could bring into the work and optimize on the things that they needed to see me do. And so it satisfied all those things in ways that felt really real to me. And so that's what I did. So did this like come to you in a sort of, you know, in the shower moment or was it something that you sat down and mapped out different alternatives and then eventually decided on this because that that's a lot of pieces that you're bringing together yeah. I'm really curious about the process it was mostly the latter I think yeah. because um you know so for those people who are thinking about having children or who have children um if you're lucky enough to have one 
What you do then know is that your days are filled with lots of quiet hours. And so unlike now with the kids older, I really had a lot of time just to think Mm. a lot of that walking and thinking. And so I did, it was more the latter. I really thought about it because I wanted to be deliberate. I wanted to choose to be in the academy. I wanted to sort of, even though I knew I liked research, I wanted to do research on something that could sustain me for a lifetime potentially. Yes. So it was still, it was very deliberate. I will say then it was this moment too. I mean, I was starting to watch disasters around the world and more as a researcher would rather than as a reader of a newspaper would. I was starting to pay attention um, as a researcher. And then um, I would say it kind of all came together when the Indian Ocean tsunami hit on December 24, 2004. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was clear. I mean, if it wasn't clear before, I thought this disasters are mass coordination and mass discoordination events. Uh, information converges. It is, there's a dearth of information. There is an abundance of information, uh, good and bad, all jumbled up in different places in different ways. How can we think about this in a very big way? It was also the dawn of really thinking about ubiquitous computing yes. and really the commercial yep. sense. But before our smartphones and right? but it was before Twitter smartphones. and things like that. It was before, yeah, it was before most social media as the sort of the public thinks about it, you know, those in computer science were doing these kinds of things for a while, but at our desks, um, we didn't have data services at the time. And so then what I did when, when all that came together, I spent the spring semester, I hunkered down in the natural hazards. So I was still half time. So I wasn't teaching in the spring. So I hunkered down in the natural hazards library, which is a national treasure and on our CU campus. And I was like, wow, it's as though this was meant to be. And I, I, I was there all day, every day, eight to five, reading as much as I could about the social science of disaster so that I could write a genuine, thoughtful proposal. Well, I wanted to make sure I had a research design for which there could then be a research proposal yes. to, to submit to the National Science Foundation. And it, and it, and I worked really hard. But then going back to my tr- early training in anthropology, and sociology with Aaron Sicarell and Ed Hutchins, I knew knew that the good questions came from being immersed in the domain. Never mind that I was interested in technology and digital this yeah. and digital that. It was less a fascination with what could be and more an understanding of what the genuine problems were that motivated a set of good questions that I think helped with ultimately getting the funding for that work. This this was really brave because no one was really doing no. this work at this intersection. Yeah. Did I don't it know feel it, brave at the time? Uh, it felt necessary and it felt like chips all in, like this is what I really want to do. And I hope it works out. And if it doesn't, then maybe it's a sign that I haven't found my life trajectory, um, you know, all sorts of things. Yeah. So, yeah, I guess, I guess when you say it, I can say maybe it was. At the time, it just felt necessary. Like in something you had to do. Yeah, I yeah, did, yeah. yeah. yeah I, I, I can did. almost see that sort of sense yeah. just in the way you talk about it. Yeah. So obviously that grant was successful as it well. Was, yeah. And you ended up developing, uh, building up a whole research centre yeah. group mm-hmm. uh, on this with multiple students mm-hmm. and lots of really important work. Yeah. What was exciting about that, well, I'll tell a story that made it, makes it a little bit, I was a little regretful when I actually got the funding because the grant proposal, I just want to be fully honest here, the grant proposal was due in July, um, and then Hurricane Katrina hit at the end of August. And 
I found out in November I got the funding. I was in Denmark at the time. I actually flew back to the U.S. Gulf Coast region to do a little bit of research um, just, to, just to understand w- what it meant to be there in the field doing the work. So I flew back from Denmark um, and... Uh, and so when I found out in November I got the funding, my first reaction was that I felt really bad, actually, about it. And that's because it just felt, um, uh, it felt that the cost of this disastrous, truly disastrous thing happening, the NSF wasn't funding much disaster research at the time. Um, and so I thought, gosh, that was unfortunate. Like, it was just, mm. it wasn't, it, it was, it, it was fortunate for doing the research, but not fortunate for the people who were suffering. And then I read the proposal again, and I was really surprised to see how much in that proposal was really articulating the things that we started to see in Katrina. And then it doesn't take long when you just open the newspaper and you live outside the U.S., natural hazards are happening every day across the globe. Yes. And then you say to yourself, I said to myself, no, this is just, if anything, a chance to really try to make a difference. Make and a so, difference, yeah. So, yeah, but the first the first feeling wasn't oh. elation or, sati- oh. or satisfaction. Yeah. It was actually a whole bunch of sorrow until yeah. I realized that. Yeah. And then, of course, I knew there was just a big obligation here to do the work, and so then we started it. It's probably something that you're navigating all the time, though, with this sort of work, yeah. because the very nature of any field site you go into or any data that you're collecting yeah. entails human suffering and it tragedy. Does. Yeah, it does. Mm. Yes. How, so it how do you quite care right. for your, even, even though, you know, you know that you're doing stuff that you want to make a difference with, how do you care for yourselves, care for your research team? That's a very good question. I think there are some folks who do it better than I, um, so one way to think about it is divide and conquer because the problems are so big, but actually the benefit of doing that is not everybody's immersed in all the concurrent things that are going on. Yeah. So there's, so there's some separation of all the different things that you could worry about and you focus on one set of things. I think, I think some people go to therapy actually, um, just being completely honest. I think we talk a lot with each other. Um, and I think, you know, it's one of those things where once the veil is lifted, you you just have to stay in, right? Because there's work to do there. Yeah. So you buy so, into the the yeah. increased sort of urgency and yeah. importance. Yeah, and then it. you realize there's people all around the world who are always helping in major events like this, and and you're one of them. If anything, you one feels that one can't act fast enough because research takes some time um, to do well. Because if you get it wrong, you could do it fast, and that's satisfying, I suppose, for some people who want research answers, but what if it's not right? Mm. And so there's this kind of, there's this balance between expediency and accuracy. And that's one where, that's if anything where I feel the tension because, you know, in the middle of that is human sorrow, I suppose. Yeah, yeah. Really interesting tensions in multiple ways to navigate. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So... How did that all factor into eventually getting tenure? So, so eventually, so it was only about ten or eleven years ago that I actually finally earned. I got the full time position because I went really? to my university. Yeah, I went to my Despite university. Despite getting all this funding, right? And yeah, um, right. So that first grant came in, and that grant beget other grants, right? So very large grants. Um, 
to help that enable these multidisciplinary teams, which is what I really love. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think what I, if I could speak to the HCI community, human computer interaction or the human centered computing communities, um, as we co- differently call ourselves, is that it turns out, so I'm still doing this in computer science, still doing this in a very traditional college of engineering, um, which itself has since modernized, but the time was still, you know, you had to explain why you cared about the social and the yes, societal. Yes, yes. Um, and I, I think many I, of us would share that yes, experience. Yes, I'm sure many of us would. And I think, I mean, I, I feel that I can talk to colleges of engineering about this now and not feel... Um, and, and bring up useful lessons rather than sort of um, old wounds, right? Like, oh, there's yeah. a lesson to be learned from this. So I have a very positive sort of set of feelings about what one can learn from these things. Um, so let me see. I lost track. Where was I? Oh, so one of the things I really felt strongly in is that if you actually originate a, um, these large research programs with a human-centered computing question, it enables lots of different kinds of basic science in various computing disciplines, in various social science disciplines and humanities. And we were able to bring that all together in service of the question, but not at the cost of those individuals also who are doing the work, also needing to do basic research in their particular areas their, of expertise. Yeah. And so that's something I really cared about. So sometimes where I get the sort of the, the relief from the disaster question is thinking about the bigger enterprise of scholarship mm-hmm. and multidisciplinary mm-hmm. and the emergence then of disciplines and how they emerge. And I think this is how they emerge yeah. is through this multidisciplinarity. So, you know, it was about, I think it was 2007 where I said, folks, you know, this, this isn't quite working. Um, a half-time position. Can we, can we talk about a full-time position? Were you funding yourself for the other half-time uh, from your grant? What was I doing? I don't want to be inaccurate in my reporting. I think it was a mix of things because I was having children along the way and sometimes the half-time situation worked to my advantage so I could take care of a young child and not have to worry about a course and things like that. So I, I did things. So I, I, I used it to, um, to the advantage of my family and I think to others even though it didn't always work quite. Yeah. <laughs> so I was just going to ask, was that a difficult juggle to do? You know, because you said the half-time position really was not was more than half-time in the work that it actually needed. Yes, and so some people even here at this conference that we're, we're, we're both attending ask me how I balance these things. And I, I realize, and this is, I think, an un, it's a true answer. It might be unsatisfying and maybe hard to understand. But my... The world in which I am physically mobile is actually very small. I do do field research and go to disaster sites, less so now. A lot of my students do that. Um, but my world is quite small in terms of my physical presence. Like I, I'm very parsimonious with my physical movement, which is to say I'm at work and I'm at home. And I take advantage of all the wonderful things we can do with shopping online to reduce a lot of the extraneous movement in the world. I know that sounds funny, but like I am, I am one of two places. Um, even here at this conference, I am, I have been here and I've been preparing for a number of things. And though I would love to see more of New York, I'm, I'm not. Mm. Um, and I think, oh, there's a time in my future where I can do that to manage the family and professional life with the, with the intensity of the professional life, the intensity of family life. Um, so, but luckily my intellectual world and the people I get to know like you and the people I get to work with and the things I get to think about, the people I get to help. Um, that's huge. That's global. Mm. And so that's how we get everything done. Both, both, both my partner and I, right. Is parsimonious physical movement, really efficient sort of efficiencies there. 
but then the world in our in our minds and in our papers and in the people we reach we hope is big that also sounds like you have a sense of this is what it needs to be for now exactly. to get through with yeah. you know, and and these are the ways that we're managing and the trade-offs yes. you know whether whether online shopping is a trade-off or not. but do you know what I mean like the choices oh, totally. to make it happen oh yeah and that you reflected that it it is likely to change yeah. later and that yeah. that's okay that's just where you're at at the moment it is yeah and it's i think it's very hard to get into if you've lived a big 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 life mm. uh, or you know a world where your movement it's physical movement. It's yeah. funny. It's people think that's a funny thing to talk about, but where your physical movement is completely free. Um, and when you get more constrained like this, it can be hard. And then you realize it's, it's satisfying. You can get a lot done and I'm not unhappy with the trade off at all. That's, that's great to hear. Yeah. That's really good. <laughs> so having got a finally, which I find that I hadn't actually realized yeah. that it was, a lot so of long. No, so then, so then, full time position in two thousand and seven. I think it is. I have to look at my CV to make sure I'm right about this. So forgive me, listeners, if I'm wrong. But it was about then, two thousand and seven. And then I still wasn't tenured, and I didn't get. And then I went up a couple years after that. Again, we have to look at my CV. So a lot of this I just erase. And I became an associate professor without tenure in the U.S. And that was because I asked for that. So in uh, 2007, I got the full-time position and then, um, but it was, uh, and then sometime after that, I had to go up for associate, but without tenure because there was still some concern. I think that it wasn't enough. I mean, my record at this point was probably. It was outstanding. I think so. I mean, I mean that's what people say. Um, and, uh, but I was working with FEMA and in Washington, DC, and I was an assistant professor, but getting ever older. And some people thought my students had out, were outranking me because an assistant professor sounds like a graduate research assistant in the U S and they didn't understand that I was in fact the, the lead. And so I asked the university to please consider making me associate professor. It was kind of time. They said, yes, but without tenure. So then I went up for associate without tenure. I got that. And then a couple of years later, I had to go up again for associate with tenure, and I got that. And then to compensate, I finally went up for full, but it was a much shorter clock between all than the normal clock you would normally see. So, yeah, it was um, while I was uh, founding the department. So I founded the department and became full at the same time. So I'm just quite flabbergasted you know the the yeah. profile that you had the the fact that you were creating a whole new research area that you were doing all this on part-time and the the profile that you have in the community and the impact that you that it the system didn't support it but it, it seems like you're in a good place now I th think you're one of the few women as a sort of department chair uh, and this is a whole new department, whole new isn't department, it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So, can you just reflect on some of the, sure. the exciting things yeah. and the challenges around you know, doing that? I mean, you know, I'm ever the optimist, and so I speak and I speak with 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 a smile, and maybe maybe people will hear that. Um, and um, it helps to hear that you're flabbergasted because when you're living in these things, it's it's kind of hard to know. Um, well, I knew it didn't feel quite right, but, uh, but it doesn't yeah, a lot feel of just, doesn't, it doesn't, it feel, wasn't just. feel just, no, but, and, uh, but no, most people in our community didn't know that about my, about my situation. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, no, so one carries on and, uh, <laughs> um, the university, I think 
um, more than the College of Engineering, which itself has really modernized and kind of grown with the times. I'm really happy to say that. And I think I had a, my perseverance had a, a role in sort of helping um, that col- the college think about yeah. uh, all the ways in which you could have engineers and how engineering could be informed by these ways of thinking. So that was, that's how I, how I'll choose to think about it. Um, but the campus was really taking notice on the impact we were having in research and the number, the kinds of students we were, I was producing and the lab was producing um, and the number of different faculty who were involved in the research. Because at this point we had civil engineers, department of transportation, national center for atmospheric research, um, natural language processing, uh, scholars, machine learning more generally software engineering policy people all involved. And then my first, so I've graduated seven PhD students so far. They're all women. All, all seven of them. So I have yet to graduate. Not by uh, deliberate choice. No, it just, it's just what happened. I mean, I mean, you know, if anything, I'm just sort of skewing the numbers in the wrong direction. <laughs> I'll graduate um, two PhD students who are who are men this year, <laughs> and they're and, and they're they're doing wonderful work. So I'll get a little bit of balance back in my own lab. But the campus started taking notice, and so they asked me to advise while I was untenured. Um, it's about seven years ago, on. Um, uh, the creation of a new college at the university, and they knew they wanted to do something in the area of new media, um, new media, computing, the arts, you know, it was kind of, uh, it was deliberately fuzzy in interesting ways, and so they asked me to advise, and I thought, well, that that sounds interesting, and so I did, and um, in the end, I mean, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a long multi-year story, but I'll just hop to the end, which was in the end, it resulted in the creation of, the new, of a new department of information science as part of a new college of media, communication, and information. That you helped shape and define. Definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or you did shape and define. Yeah, along with Clayton Lewis and yeah. some others that helped us. But there, was, there, were, there were many more, I think, on campus that were also helping to shape the whole college. Mm-hmm. And so in the end, when we were trying to create these six or seven departments within the college, there were a bunch of us interested in these very interdisciplinary media, computing, arts, humanities stuff that we ended up being divided among this group. And you know Clayton Lewis, I, and, and he's a human-computer com, uh, human interaction sort of original. Um, and so he was lovely to work with as we, were, as we were developing this department. And in doing so, we had to make the argument both to campus um, as well as to the state, to the regents. And so it was really a very um, instructive time for me to think about how research um, – interacts with education naturally but really important matters of higher ed in the moment and what it will mean for the next 50 mm. years so it was a really important chance to reflect on what can a discipline offer um, that can help a university continue to keep becoming a universe of disciplines right so uh, it was all the work we were doing in disaster or crisis informatics um, it was the informatics part of it. I mean, informatics has some baggage as a word. So it was the crisis informatics work that, though it wasn't going to be a department of crisis informatics, that, that wouldn't really make much no. sense. Um, it was the way in which you're doing this multi, multidisciplinary pursuit of information science and computing that allowed for a very, I think, uh, authentic and co- um, concrete definition 
of what information science can be. If we were, if, if CU was entering into the scene in 2015, after a lot of the rest of the world were developing iSchools in the year 2000, what should it look like in 2015? And so I really took all the things that we had been learning for those, you know, 10 years at that point and imagining them in relation to other domains and other problems. And I think that's what ended up making it possible to develop a new department, which is very, very hard to do in a public university. Well, anywhere, I think, I can certainly say it's hard to do in a public university in the U.S. So in taking on those challenges, how do you, what, what have you done in particular in setting up the new department that reflects that thinking about what higher ed might mean in the future that's different? Well, there's the ideals and there's the realities. Um, so the ideals are around bringing, bringing research into the classroom for sure. Um, so, uh, so, you know, it's pretty challenging to change undergraduate curriculum once it gets going, uh, the structure of it because of the workflows and students have to move through them. Like it's so hard to move through that. And so we tried to create a fairly flexible curriculum while while still pinning things down that we felt were essential. So, for example, we have a category of classes called Investigations in Information Science, and they re-rotate on the topics so that the faculty who are all research active bring their current research into the classroom and have it be sort of a problem first orientation to solving the problem. So you might bring things that you learned in your other classes, this is undergraduates, but how to do a little information visualization, how to do some qualitative observation, how to do interviews, how to do a little bit of scraping of data, how to do some descriptive statistics. Um, and you, you're meant to bring all these things together in a usable way and knowing that some people will have greater skills than others depending on the path they took through to yeah. get to that class. But at the front of the room is this expert in crisis informatics or, in the case of Amy Voida, philanthropic informatics or learning uh, creative learning environments for Rick Rose Roquet or whatever it might be. Brian Keegan does Wikipedia studies and, and OpenStreetMap work. Um, so the idea is you could work on real problems that we were currently working on in the real world and have them tackle tackle little bits of it. And then in ideal circumstances, parts of those problems could actually become a part of the f- a formal research program, like a, p- a paper or a part of a paper or a stepping stone to a bigger piece that would help both. So it was a way to integrate research and education in very deep ways. I think that was something very, that we cared very about. Very interesting. That's yeah. really interesting. Uh, so I imagine that there's a huge amount of pragmatic logistics, planning, recruiting people, putting in place processes yes. and policies and all of that work. Yeah. Um, and then there's a whole other layer as well of learning how to be the <laughs> leader of this sort of new yeah. group department. Yeah. Yes. Okay. So um, that's all correct. Um, and though I thought going in, I, I knew I didn't know everything I would need to learn. I knew that because, you know, we study human coordination organizations. I knew there were things I couldn't possibly dream of that would be coming to me. Um, but it's, it's even more than that. So it's, um, it's learning how to be a chair of a department. And one of the things I think we do, we're so, we don't do well, we're, uh, we need to do improve in higher ed is um, building um, 
professional development for uh, academic leadership. Yes. Uh, we just don't have pathways for that at all. At all. I mean, we're just now kind of figuring out, oh, I guess we should mentor a brand new PhD to tenure. Oh, let's let's do that. So we're sort of doing that now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> sometimes sometimes we do it well, sometimes we don't. But once you get there, there's really no training beyond that. There's no training on how to lead. There's no training on and so so yeah, and so I um I think that's something I really would like to um it's something I'm thinking a lot about in improving higher ed and thinking about it for the next 50 years and what it will be in the U.S. and beyond in 50 years. And I don't mean to keep focusing on the U.S. It's just but that that's it's just, just your what context, I know. So it's just what I know yeah. best. Um, so that's why I, I name that. Um, so, yes, I had to learn how to be a chair and I had to learn how to found a department. One of the things I tell people who have a hard time imagining it, so it's very hard actually to find anybody who has started a new department. It's not that there hasn't been such a thing because all departments have started at one point yes, or another. But usually a long, long, time, a long ago. time ago. And those <laughs> In folks, a whole different climate. And those folks aren't around to really talk to. Yeah. Um, they're just not. Like I've looked. And I haven't thought about that perspective. It's really challenging, mm. right? And then in the other universities, I've been able to find folks, but then there's something about the particulars of your own university. It, something has to grow, has to be incubated and grow out of the materials of what is local. And so it was, um, the job was a little bit lonely for a while until the new faculty started coming and they are all junior faculty with so many good ideas and so much energy that I was really invigorated by all of that. That's and good. so, and so I care very much for them. Um, and they have just done amazing things and they, I think have learned, they've had to simultaneously learn how to be a professor and think about, reflect on what it means to be a department. And those are really what it means to be a discipline and a department. Those are two different things. Yes. So, um, and disciplines, but it can be murky. Often we, we bring them together and that's why we have. So how would you, how would you define those differences? So a department is a structure that has to act within the institution that it's really highly localized and living in, the particular institution of that local university in addition to the larger institution of the academy. Um, So there are just, there's some bureaucratic qualities to that. Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. How do students get, how do students enter into the university, a big university like University of Colorado? Turns out most faculty don't have to think about that. And I, don't, I would argue that they probably don't have, they shouldn't because we have to do so many other things. Yes. But suddenly we have to think about how the production functions of the university, how we produce students, how we produce knowledge, um, from the very, very start, like point of entry, you know, almost as a manufacturing thing, to the end. We, we do the big middle, but there's the very beginning that we have to, that we've had to think about in terms of the, um, setting up our curriculum, how to reach students, how to recruit students, how to bring them in as freshmen and uh, what they begin with and all those things that I think we've all had to learn that we sort of didn't really know or ha- we had only our own experience mm-hmm. and that's often not enough. We have yeah. to draw on other people's experiences to do that. So. so, and then whereas a discipline is always trying to define what it is, right? And in something like information science, which... I think should be a response to the world that we're living in today and the world that we might, that we want to live in tomorrow. It should be the disciplinary response. I think computer science should also, I think all disciplines need to be a response to the world that we're living in today. 
um, and the world we hope to live in. Um, the thing I'll say about computing professions and disciplines is that this is really an important time to reflect. Really important. Yeah, because the technological trajectories that we have been a part of building are intersecting with these other very large tra trajectories in the world, social, societal, political, uh, economic, uh, natural, um, uh, natural world trajectories. And uh, that's been never more obvious than I think it is now. So I'd, I'd love to pick up on the leadership thing again sure. as well okay. and just what other skills that you think would be useful to learn because I actually ran a workshop as part of a conference for the that had a pre-conference workshop for the deans of computer science oh. in Europe oh, great. on leadership issues and you know, personal development issues for leadership. And it was one of the common responses that people gave back that these are things that no one has ever talked to them about or there's no, no training for. Um, we, I think I did a, a sort of a Mentimeter survey at the beginning and, you know, like training for that role was just not available. No. Um, so I think it is something that's really timely and important. And I think leadership happens at all levels as well. I mean, you're leading yeah. you know, from the very beginning in, right. in different ways. Right. So what do you think have been the key things that you've been learning? Um, well, I think because I'm founding chair, I'll, I emphasize the founding not because I'm proud of it, but because of what it means in terms of the work, is that, so again, in the U.S., chairs usually report to deans and deans report to the provost. In the founding part of this, I was exposed to senior administration more than I would have been in a, in a more typical chair situation. And so it was that exposure to the administration of higher ed. And though we call it bureaucratic in kind of disdainful ways, the truth is, you know, senior administration is, they're dealing with extremely hard problems. Um, and it was being exposed to really sort of the essence of what those hard problems were that helped me understand my little piece of it and how I, how I could act into that in useful ways, um, both as an individual, but as a person representing a faculty, staff, and students. And so that exposure to how universities really work, um, I think would be so valuable to faculty and students and staff, actually. I don't think it's just faculty. Yes. Yeah. Um, certainly staff and then students, um, they should have a bit of the luxury of sort of being insulated from some of those things. But we're talking about PhD students who are moving into the professoriate. We want to expose a lot of those things to them too in stages. And that's something that Amy Voida, one of our junior faculty at um, Colorado, has been very instructive in doing for our department. And I've taken a lot of lessons from her. Um, the painful lessons I learned early in my career about, you asked, was it like, oh, aha, did something happen and you knew that was it? Or did you think a lot about these things? So some of the, the difficult lessons early in my career were all about recognizing that disciplines and how one interprets a discipline, how one interprets, how one is pushing a discipline and how that intersects with the local and the local structures that we're working in. That, I think, also clued me in very early on to the The ways in which, you know, science is, it's naive to think science is only about pursuing ideas that just come to one's head. 
they have to be good ideas. They have to be tractable ideas. And tractability is in both the ability to do them at all. Like, mm, you know, yes. if you had all the resources in the world, yeah. could you do this problem? But also, are they tractable in terms of your local circumstances? And that, by I mean, one's own skill set, the kind of other skills you have access to, and the kind of uh, social infrastructure and technological infrastructure you have support of. And so you ha- one has to be wise in terms of kind of bringing all those things together to then sort of deliver. And I think that's what I wish more of us could know earlier on. And I think that actually helps with then research leadership and academic leadership, which is different than corporate leadership, I imagine. Very different. Right? I think it's so, very different. Yeah. I mean, some overlap, but yes, totally I mean, very different. Yeah, there must be some overlap. Different drivers and different, yeah. Uh, yeah. different cultures. Yeah. yeah. Um, as we sort of come to the end of time, and because I know you have to go, are there any things that we haven't talked about that you would like to talk about or any final thoughts or comments or reflections? Well, you're a very good interviewer, Geraldine. You've asked me questions that I think about in my head and nobody ever talks to me about. So um, I appreciate that. I've shared um, more here than I've been able to talk about in other situations, so th- I thank you for that. Um, I guess I'll just maybe be a little repetitive when I say that I think the problems we take on in computing, which I'll use to encompass a lot of different sub-disciplines, and I like the verb use of computing to kind of capture that. Um, I think the more we appreciate the actions that we take in our research and with our students really does have impact on the world. We want it to be positive impact, but it can have negative impact. And we really have to understand, I think we need to stand, we need to pose our questions in relation to the world, the bigger world that we, we want to live in. And I think if we do that, it's, it's not, it's an, it's an ethical stance, but it's not only an ethical stance. It is a very intellectually productive stance because one can really uncover problems that feel elusive without, if, if one didn't have that stance, that really come into view much more quickly because they feel so essential. Um, they're often kind of stated so broadly, um, but then you start there and then you move them into tractable problems that yeah. you can solve one paper at a time with one partnership at a time. But when you stand in relation to things that are happening in the world today and the world in 50 years, which is within our view, right? The things we need now are very much going yes. to affect the things in 50 years and, and beyond. But, but I can, you know, we, even if we don't have, I don't have 50 years left on the planet, <laughs> but, but, but one can still imagine 50 years out, right? Yes. Um, it's maybe a little harder to imagine for me anyway, a hundred years out, but I can imagine 50. Um, and I think, I think by doing that, it helps any single person and then any single research program and then maybe even any department or unit kind of sort of endure um, the ups and downs that we might experience that are intrinsic to our own kind of lives that make life difficult and then extrinsic that just sort of work against the things sort of moving forward otherwise. And I think being true to those things really helps really helps a career and a person and a pursuit and curiosity endure. I like the way you've brought together, you know, keeping hold of that bigger vision and the bigger difference you want to make and having that longer-term view, but thinking about what you're going to do now and tomorrow and next week and that 
it is you know, practically a matter of small steps to get there. Yeah, totally. And I think that's a big skill to learn in just becoming a researcher, isn't it? Because you sort of feel like if you're not grappling with the big problem, you're not doing good enough. But if you're trying to grapple with the big problem, you're not doing anything because right. you can't no. bite it up. No. Yeah. I, I concur completely. Yeah. yeah, interesting. And how we also train our students as well from bachelors on yeah. to have these perspectives and critically think about what's the impact of the work that they, they might do when they leave their degree Yeah, um, on that 50-year you know, vision. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, interesting challenges. <laughs> so all the best in your new department and... Thank you so much for your time. It's been just so good to be able to sit and chat. Geraldine, this has just been an absolute delight and um, a privilege to be able to talk to you about these things. Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you. You can find the summary notes and related links for this podcast on www.changingacademiclife.com. You can also subscribe to Changing Academic Life on iTunes and now also on Stitcher. And you can follow Change ACAD Life on Twitter. And if something connected with you, please consider sharing this podcast with your colleagues so that we can widen the conversation about how we can do academia differently. Mm-hmm.